So Hebrews chapter 9, as it says, the title of the message is God's Last Will and Testament. So let's pray for a moment, shall we, before we get into God's Word together. Lord, again, we ask that you would pour out your spirit, open our hearts, Lord, to hear what your spirit is saying tonight. We love your word, Lord. Your word is truth. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And it's just been wonderful, a wonderful uh, journey going through the book of Hebrews and learning about our faithful high priests, our heavenly high priests, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So, Lord, teach us tonight. Anoint me, I pray. Anoint your word and speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I trust you're in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be floating around uh, that chapter before, a little before and maybe after. But uh, before we continue in Hebrews 9, I always like to do a, a little short review uh, to look at some things that we've been, we, we've been talking about and kind of bring us up to speed. So go back to, I'd like to start with a statement that he made in uh, chapter 8, verse 6, where it says, Now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. What is a mediator? A mediator is someone who goes between. Just like Moses stood between God and the people, Jesus is our mediator. No one comes to the Father but by, by me, Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also said, I am the door. No one enters by, but by me. He said, he who believes in me will have everlasting life. So Jesus is our mediator. And we know by trusting Christ alone and what he has done for us, as our mediator and as our go-between, we are redeemed and we receive the gift of eternal life. And as our mediator, Jesus has done a complete work of redemption. He is the mediator of a new and better covenant established on better promises. So again, we know that Hebrews was originally written to the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem who needed help with this transition going from the old covenant to the new. Because as it says in chapter 8, the last verse of chapter 8, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And we know it literally vanished away when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. The temple was gone, the priesthood the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the, they were dispersed, and it was all vanishing away by the will of God. So it's very important for them to know these things in order to move on and to fully accept that Jesus had become the mediator, their mediator as well, of a new covenant, and their high priest who now ministers in heaven. So the writer of Hebrews has spent a lot of time comparing the old and the new, Explaining that the Old Covenant, its tabernacle, its ceremonies and rituals, its animal sacrifices, was never meant to be permanent. Although they were ordained by God, they could not change a person's heart. They could not cleanse a person's conscience. The blood of bulls and goats only covered sin. They only pointed to, 
to the sacrifice God himself would need to make for sin to be truly forgiven and for sin to be truly washed away. It's interesting that those under the old covenant, just like us, needed to exercise faith and obedience. If the people obeyed and brought the required sacrifices, they would be declared clean and accepted by God. Their sin being covered by the shedding of the blood. But the emphasis of the old covenant was, an ex was the external ceremony. It was symbolic and pointed to a future internal spiritual reality. What is now known as a new and living way to enter into God's holy presence, to enter into the holy of holies. So with the old covenant, the blessings themselves were, were, that they received were temporal. If they obeyed, God blessed them. But they were, they were mostly material and temporal, like rain for their crops or protection from their enemies. If they disobeyed, he withheld their blessing. So last week, we looked at the tabernacle, and we were reminded that under the old covenant, the people did not have access to the Holy of Holies. Only the priests and the Levites were permitted in the outer courts. Only the priest ministered in the holy place. Only the high priest, we know, entered the Holy of Holies. And that was only once a year, as he brought sacrifices for himself and for the sins of the people. But the people were not allowed access into God's holy presence. They were separated from the Holy of Holies by the outer, court, the outer walls and the outer courts. We read about this last week. I'd like to read it again for a moment in chapter 9, starting in verse 6. It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, per performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins or the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Notice verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So the old co covenant did not provide a way for the people into the presence of God. It did not provide access. There was no access. Only the high priest, only the high priest could go in once a year. And that with fear and trembling. They might have to pull the guy out dead if he didn't get it right. All they knew was that God was in their midst. He was a powerful God. He did miraculous things. And at that point, they were also learning that he was holy and that they were sinful. And they, they had a heart to obey. They had a heart to keep the law, but they found themselves failing over and over again, finding themselves guilty in need of another sacrifice, the shedding of more blood to cover their sin. We know that God loved them. He revealed his desire to dwell among them. But they had to worship from a distance as Moses acted as their mediator. The way into God's presence had not yet, yet been made manifest. Yet it was later prophesied by Jeremiah. Notice uh, in chapter 8, verse 10, For this is the covenant 
that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their, heart, in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is the main point of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus, our high priest, is the mediator of a better covenant. The old covenant exercised, or excuse me, emphasized an external ceremony, which was symbolic and pointed to a future internal spiritual reality. And now a new and living way has been established to come into God's holy presence, made only possible by the death of Christ on the cross, a sinless, acceptable sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. Notice again verse 15 of chapter 9. said, For this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. And now verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So in verse 16, he now goes on to explain the terms of the new covenant. The Greek word there used for covenant I think it's diathiki, has a dual meaning. It means covenant, which is an agreement, but it also has a legal authoritative meaning. The best, it's best understood as a last will and testament. Before we get into that, I'd like to read something I found on covenants. This, this article on covenants I thought was very interesting. It said, in scriptures, God is the initiator. God came to man declaring his will and seeking his adherence. Man can either accept it or reject it, but he cannot change it. However, there is not always the element of joint obligations. In some instances, God only obligates himself. God was motivated by his heart and nature to make covenants with man. They are manifestations of his love and grace and mercy. By them, he reveals his faithfulness and trustworthiness. He never forgets them, and he always follows through on them. In addition to making, keeping, and revealing the terms of his covenant, God also enables man to keep them by his grace. Covenants provide the binding sense of commitment to an interpersonal relationship. Those who enter into them obligate themselves to that relationship and are provided with a strong sense of security. They are vehicles of expression of God's will and purpose for man and the effective means by which they are fulfilled. There are basically three parts to a covenant that involve all three persons of the Godhead. There, first of all, are the words or the terms of the covenant, which come from the Father. Then there is the blood of the covenant, which requires an acceptable sacrifice and a mediator and is administered at the sanctuary, and this we know as the work of the Son. And finally, there is the seal of the covenant. The seal is also a sign or a token that guarantees the promise of the covenant. And this is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts in the new covenant. So these must be the testimony, or there must be the testimony of these three. <clears throat> so in verse 16, we are again given the terms of the new covenant, which again can also be thought of as a testament because it is the lawful, binding, unchangeable will of God. Here's, here's a great quote. Uh, great quote. <laughs> These terms of the covenant are not 
the result of a process of negotiation in which God talks things over with people and they come to a mutually acceptable arrangement. God lays down the terms. The result is a covenant characterized by the same kind of finality that we see in a testament. You cannot dicker with a testator. Right? Someone makes out their will. They say, this is what's going to happen when I die. And it's legal. It's binding. It's notarized, cauterized, whatever they do. And it's, it's a done deal. You, d you don't argue with that. And that's how God makes a testament or a covenant. Okay? It's God's last will and testament. <clears throat> and the terms state the necessity of the death of Christ, just as it is necessary for a testator to die in order for his will to come into force. Notice again verse 16. For, there, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it is has no power at all while the testator lives. Now you could paraphrase that and say, where there is a will, there is also the necessity for the death of the one who made the will. So we all understand the idea of having a will or leaving an inheritance to children or receiving an inheritance from parents. I think we all in our culture, we get that. My wife and I experienced that about nine years ago when, when her father died. She received a fourth of his estate, having to share it with three other family members. But none of that, none of those things were available to her. She didn't benefit from his will at all, obviously, as long as he was alive. It was only upon his death that his will was in force, and she became a beneficiary. In the same way, no one could benefit from what God had promised, namely, an eternal inheritance until the death of his son. It's an awesome picture. And I think it goes way beyond our understanding because we're, we're speaking of what God has done to bring us to himself. Our, our inheritance in Christ is eternal life. The life is in God's son. The life is in his son. He who has the son has life. Eternal life is only found in Christ but it was necessary for Jesus to die in order for us to receive our inheritance, for us to become beneficiaries of what God has promised. His death was according to the terms of the covenant. It was what God ordained. It was necessary for the covenant to take effect. Notice again what he says in verse 18. <clears throat> Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no Remission. So in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God has required that blood be both shed and applied. Turn to Exodus 24 for a moment, if you would. I'd like for us to see this, exactly what is recorded there, and we'll get a picture of what Moses was required to do with the blood of the covenant. <clears throat> Exodus 24 Starting in verse 3. 
So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So again, this was a ceremonial purification. When those things were sprinkled with blood, they were considered purified and acceptable to God. And the principle, what God has ordained, carries over to the new covenant. That's why we read here in Hebrews, blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. In other words, justice requires payment. It would be unjust for God, who is a just judge, to simply clear the guilty. Justice and wrath must be satisfied. And the payment for sin is the atoning death of the innocent. Now, Lowell pointed out a few weeks ago that animals are amoral. In that sense, they are sinless. This would explain why their blood under the old covenant was acceptable to God, but only to cover sin only to stay the wrath of God. Their transgressions still needed eternal redemption. That's why if, if you're back in Hebrews 9, verse 15, actually I think it's Hebrews 8, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Was that chapter 8 or 9? 9, thank you. 9.15. So those who died in faith under the old covenant, who for a time went to a place that Jesus called Abraham's bosom, they too needed to hear and respond to the gospel, which was preached to them by Christ himself after he died and descended into the lower parts of the earth. The eternal redemption purchased by the blood of Christ avails for those who sinned under the old covenant, as well as for us who are under the new. Look again at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This was the good news that was preached to them who were under the law. Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, went to tell them it is finished. All those rituals and ceremonies that God required over and over are no longer necessary. Those dead works that could never bring you to God, that could never bring you to perfection and completeness, and completeness or provide a way into God's holy pre presence, it's all over. All has been fulfilled. The law which only condemned you had, had been nailed to the cross. And this is, this is what Paul wrote about to the church at Rome. Turn to Romans 8 for a moment. Paul wrote about this very thing in the book of Romans, explaining that the law could never lead to eternal life because of sin and our inability to obey. 
Look at Romans 8, starting in verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Galatians 3.11 says, No one is justified by the law in the sight of God. That is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So those under the old covenant could never have obeyed the law perfectly. They said they would. Remember, they respond to Moses, all that the Lord has said, we will do. But the law only served to give a knowledge of sin. The law only brought man a death sentence and condemnation because of sin and his inability to obey. It became like a schoolmaster pointing us to our need for a savior. That's why shortly after the moral law was given, of the Ten Commandments, came the ceremonial law and the sacrifices and the shedding of blood because of sin. The law was weak through the flesh. So God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin in order that he might condemn sin in the flesh and that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. So now I'd like to finish up tonight by looking closer at verse 22 and talking about the blood of the new covenant where it says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The holy law of God required the shedding of blood and the sprinkling of the blood. Otherwise, there was no remission and there was no purification. We read that Moses sprinkled the book he sprinkled the people, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the vessels with blood. It says he purified almost all things. So because there were, it says almost all things because there, there were a number of things that God had declared were unclean. Moses wasn't commanded to clean those or to purify those. They were, there were certain things that they were commanded not to touch and not to eat. So there was probably no purifying a ham sandwich, for example or a sausage and egg McMuffin. It's not going to happen. No purifying there, okay? But even though the sprinkling of blood and the purification process was ceremonial, and although it did not change the nature of those things that were sprinkled, it did not change the nature of the people or the nature of those objects, it changed God's relationship to those things. They became purified from sin and acceptable in his sight because of what the blood represented. You don't get blood, obviously, without death and without sacrifice. Blood meant that an animal had lost its life. The Israelites were commanded not to drink the blood because God explained that the life is in the blood. Spilt blood means that death has occurred. A life has been sacrificed. The pardon for sin to us extended to us as the gift of God's grace. It was extended as a gift of God's grace, but it came with the price of his only blood, his only son who shed his blood, right? It came at the price of his only son who shed his precious blood. God is a just judge. He must punish sin. 
Now, many of you have known, heard of the way of the master. The way of the master provides excellent uh, training, I think, for sharing the gospel. And they have a great way of explaining the justice of God. And when I share the gospel with someone, I, I always want to make sure I cover three things about God. One is that God is holy. One is that God is love. And the other is that God is a just judge. I always try to lay that foundation before I get into the gospel of grace. God is holy. God is love. But God is a just judge. Justice can be explained by using this analogy. And I like this analogy because people have a tendency to justify themselves, to rationalize, and to excuse, uh, you know, excuse and explain away their sin. So here's, here's the analogy. If I were to go down to the local bank uh, with, with, a, with a firearm and walk in and walk up to the teller and say, give me the money. You know, and there is, uh, I forgot my ski mask, let's say, and there's the camera. And uh, the, the, the security guard comes up behind me and says, you're under arrest. And uh, they got me. You know, and then now they take me to court and they, I stand before the judge. And the judge says, Paul, you're guilty of attempted armed robbery. Here's the videotape. Here's the witnesses. Here's the evidence. Here's your fingerprints. You're guilty. And I say, yeah, judge, but um, imagine I said this to the judge. You know, what about all the good things that I've done? You know, I, I, last week I mowed my neighbor's lawn. He wasn't even home. You know, the week before that I walked a little old lady across the parking lot to the church door over here. You know, a week before that I, I went to church and carried the biggest Bible I have. Put, a, put 20 bucks in the offering. Now imagine if the judge said, you know, Paul, you, you've, done, you've done a few good things. You've done some pretty good things. Let's just forget all about this armed robbery thing. You, 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 you go on your way and have a nice day. Now, the question is, would that be justice? You ask anybody that question, and everyone I've asked 100% say, oh, no way. That's not justice. Isn't it interesting how we all know what justice looks like? We just don't want it coming our way, usually. Right? So... Good works outweighing or canceling out the bad doesn't work in a human court and it won't fly in the courts of heaven. God is a just judge and God has declared that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. So what would it take not just to cover sin and stay the wrath of God but to wash away sin and to prov provide eternal redemption? Not only would the sacrifice required need to be human, he would also need to be sinless. And where would God find such a man? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Turn to Romans 5 for a moment. Where would God find such a man? Not only one who lived a sinless life, but one who was willing to lay down his life for all the undeserving sinners of the world. The answer we find in Romans 5, starting in verse 6, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So as we know, it took God sending his only son into the world, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. It would take God himself, the word becoming flesh, it would take the precious blood of Jesus to provide eternal redemption. And when his blood was shed and when his blood was sprinkled and applied, man's conscience can be cleansed. Man's sin can be forgiven and an eternal pardon can be granted. He can become justified because of his faith and trust in the sacrifice that God has provided. The death of the sinless Son of God was the only way eternal redemption could be accomplished. And a new and living way could be provided into the Holy of Holies or the very presence of God. I'd like to end uh, by t uh, going to 1 John chapter 1, if you'd go there with me. <clears throat> We understand eternal redemption made possible by the blood of Christ, but in 1 John, he's talking about staying in fellowship with God and how we must continue to have faith in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ, which continues to be the basis for our forgiveness in our present relationship with the Lord. Let's talk about that after we read 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then, and then chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So the blood of Jesus Christ has an eternal cleansing power. It remains the basis for our forgiveness. So as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think it's extremely important in our fellowship with God to regularly be confessing our sins. This is what it means to walk in the light as he is in the light. It means to be honest about reality in your relationship with the Lord. Trudy and I were getting out of the car <clears throat> a few days ago at a Costco parking lot. We had to, uh, you're already laughing. <laughs> we had to park, you know, it seemed like a half mile away. And I was tired and grumpy and I know that's no excuse. 
But we, had, we were getting out of the car in the Costco parking lot, and we were on our way to the store, and a lady had just um, emptied her basket into the car. She just got all her groceries into the car. And as we're walking by, she turns to us and says, would you like to take this cart? Would you like to take my cart? And with, with great discernment, right away I knew she was asking us to do her a favor. Because, you know, it, it appeared that she was doing us a favor, but really, I don't really want to take your card. I'd rather just pick up a card at the front door when I get there. <laughs> so, almost simultaneously, I said no, and Trudy said yes. <laughs> now, I would have said yes shortly, you know, seconds later after I'd said no. You know, kind of a just kidding thing, but really I felt no, you know. So we had a very interesting discussion from that point on uh, to the store, pushing the ladies' cart back to the store. <laughs> but, you know, right away in my heart, I, I, I knew that that was rude of me. It was rude. And so with that, I could have, you know, just kind of dismissed that. I could have ignored it. But knowing God's grace, knowing God's heart, and my desire to be in fellowship with the Lord, I chose, in this case, just to confess it. Just to say, Lord, would you forgive me? I, I know that that was rude. I need the kindness of your love. Amen? Fill me with your spirit. Baptize me in your love. So I'm going to end with this, and you can jot this down if you'd like. Many of you have probably heard this before, but it's an acronym that has helped me tremendously in, in my fellowship with the Lord, and that's, and that's the word ACTS, A-C-T-S, A-C-T-S. It's helped me a great deal. It reminds me that I can always be talking to the Lord in one of four categories. A is for adoration. I can always be worshiping the Lord. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. A is for adoration. C is for confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think the Lord is always happy to hear the next confession because he wants to be in fellowship with us. We need to walk in the light as he is in the light. So C is for confession. T is for thanksgiving. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can always be giving thanks. And then S is for what? Supplication. S is for supplication, which are the re requests that we make for ourselves and for others with a humble and submitted heart, submitted to the will of God. I can be in fellowship with the Lord in any one of those four categories at a time of devotion, in a quiet place, or all day long. I can be worshiping the Lord. I can be confessing something. <laughs> I can be giving thanks. I can be praying for what I need. He's my ever-present help. I can be praying for those who I know are in need, and I can intercede for others. You see the same principle laid out for us in Ephesians 4, 6, where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to the Lord. It's interesting as you read through John 15 where Jesus said, Abide in me. He talks about how necessary it is for 
his word to abide in us. If my words abide in you, I was talking to somebody about that recently. We need to know what God has said <laughs> because it's, it's, it's a foundation for our relationship with him. But after that, he says to the disciples, then ask, ask. He, he, he invites us to request of him. And we, as, as we are filled with the, the knowledge of his word, we'll find ourselves asking according to his will. So these verses explain to us I think, how to walk with the Lord. So there you have it, A-C-T-S, Acts. As we heard this past Sunday with Jay Dangers, it's all about our relationship with him. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get that, that message. It was awesome. It's all about our relationship with the Lord. And tonight we're reminded that it was only made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, how thankful we are for how you have saved us. You sent your only son to become the propitiation for our sin, Lord. Jesus, you came and you, you lived among us. You dwelt among us. You always did the will of the Father. And then you willingly submitted to his will, submitted to the terms of the covenant. You willingly laid down your life. The righteous for the unrighteous dying so that we might live. Lord, how grateful we are. Truly, we can be giving thanks all day long Yes, Lord. for our eternal redemption, our eternal inheritance, the life we have in you, Lord. Yes. So we're thankful again tonight, and thank you, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.